Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. The girls today in society go for classical poetry. So to win their hearts, one must vote with ease. Aeschylus and Euripides, but the poet of them all will start them simply raving is the poet people call the bard of Stratford-on-Avon. Brush up your Shakespeare, start quoting him now. Brush up your Shakespeare and the women you will wow. Just to claim a few lines from Othello. All right, today's show is about quotations, and that's like the best song I could think of that really gets into the whole idea. Of, in the beginning, it's not just Shakespeare. So there's so much to say about quotations, and actually a lot that's been said about quotations. Um, the um, detective, the English detective writer, Dorothy Sayers, said something. She had one of her characters, I think, say, I always have a quotation for everything. It saves original thinking, something along those lines. Ralph Waldo Emerson kind of echoed that thought with a long, cranky quote about quotations uh, that ends, quotations confess inferiority. No, quotation confesses inferiority. Um, although probably the best quotation about quotations belongs, unsurprisingly, to the great maker of quotes, Yogi Berra, who says, who says something like, I didn't really say everything I said. Um, which, And we're going to get into all of that today, and we're going to get into it with people who know a lot more about quotations than I do. We're going to begin with Elizabeth Knowles, the editor of the Oxford Dictionary of Quotations, and Fred Shapiro, editor of the new Yale Book of Quotations, a brand new edition of which is out right now. He's also associate uh, director for collections and special projects at the Yale Law Library. I have spent the last two and a half days using every spare moment to <laughs> go through this book and play with it and have fun, and I have a million questions. But let's let's begin. First of all, Elizabeth Knowles and Fred Shapiro, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Elizabeth, do you guys know each other? I mean, is there some kind of conference that quotation experts go to every year where you all meet one another? That would be a lovely idea. I don't think there's ever been a quotations conference. But in fact, Fred and I know each other over many years, don't we, Fred, through um, connection with Oxford Dictionaries and VOED. Right. And you came to uh, you came to New Haven once. Uh, yes. With, and uh, and I did. And DSNA as a Dictionary Society of North America as well, I think. So we've um, and of course, I know Fred's work very well. And uh I have just been congratulating him on this um, very exciting, the, the the new edition. So, Elizabeth Knowles, I'm going to stay with you for a moment. I, I want you both to talk a little bit about what makes a quotation a quotation. Uh, the Yale, the new Yale book is very expansive uh, in its uh, view of what could be a quotation. And uh, there are quotations derived from all kinds uh, of venues and genres uh, and all kinds of uh, people. So, uh, Elizabeth Knowles, I, I don't know, to you, what? How, how do we define the category of a quotable quotation? I think it's quite it, it's quite a slippery concept. But given that any editor of a dictionary of quotations has to start somewhere, my my definition would be that a quotation is something which 
is a is a unique coinage. It's said something said or written by a particular person at a particular time and place in response to particular circumstances. We may not now know who it is, but it was originally the words that somebody somebody coined. They were originally the words coined by somebody, which, in another time and place, have been reached reached for by someone else who finds that they express exactly what they want to say. So I think myself that I think myself that the really lasting quotations are the ones that have the two things. They have an individuality, but they also have a universality. They they may be borrowed by somebody else, but they were originally coined by by an individual and that's what I think distinguishes them from shall we say proverbial wisdom which is much more something which emerges um emerges as as from a from a common stock from the the common from common wisdom um but does is not necessarily expressed in a particular individual way so um, I think all of that seems very, very right. And, and going through the new Yale book, I find myself thinking that, yes, I mean, quotations work. One of the ways they work is by saying something in better words than we ourselves could come up with. I uh, discovered, I loved discovering a, a quote by George Jean Nathan, who's mainly known, I think, as a drama critic. But uh, patriotism is often a veneration of real estate above principles. Wow. <laughs> That's a terrific quotation. So Fred Shapiro, Talk to me a little bit more about how you see people using uh, such an impressive and comprehensive compendium uh, as the one you've been working on for so long. Well, people people use quotation books often to find quotes on a particular subject. Uh, my book is arranged by authors, but I do have a keyword index where uh, someone can look up uh, a word and be guided to quotations that use that word. Uh, a lot of uh, my effort on the book went into tracing the origins of quotations, fi finding as far as possible how far back a given quotation can take. So anyone that's interested in you know, who originated quotations uh, and uh, where and when they use them, uh, I think, uh, We'll find a lot of material in my book about that. Right. And, and you know, sometimes it's kind of interesting. The dead ends can be as interesting, I think, as as the throughways that, that connect you to the originator. And there's a, there's a quote that I use all the time, which I'm sure I don't even say correctly, even given the fact that there may not be a canonical version of it. But it's often ascribed, uh, Fred, to Edmund Burke. And it's, you know, all that is necessary for evil to prevail uh, is for good men to do nothing or something like that. But I note in your book there, and I think I've seen this before, there isn't really a good way to nail that one to Edmund Burke's escutcheon, right? Right. Uh, that uh, it's been... It's been attributed, found to be attributed to Edmund Burke as far back as 1921, uh, but no further than that. So it's it's very unlikely that it was really originated. Or, I mean, I would say it was clearly not originated by Edmund Burke. So what what I do in my book is, uh, if the true origin is unfindable, I 
present what is the earliest that, that is findable and uh, what was the, the earliest wording of it. Uh, and uh, I, I do this in little annotations that are scattered throughout the book. And to me, that these are the most interesting parts of it, the book. You know, um, Elizabeth, sometimes the quotations that we know, we quote unquote know, are are a little out of whack or maybe just in the wrong language. And I think most people grow up hearing that Julius Caesar's last words were, were et tu brute or, or et tu brutus or something. Um, I think we know that he would have spoken, and I think we know via a source too, that as many kind of higher class Romans of the time did, he spoke Greek and he probably would have said something like kaisu technon, which is basically the same idea, right? You too, kid. I th- yes, and I, but I think also that it, it's very interesting with quotations. Yes, I mean accuracy. We we must all um, we must all want scholarship and accuracy. But it is very interesting sometimes to look at what people believe about quotations, mm-hmm, yeah. and there are times when this this really does inform the context. One of the things that interests me most about quotations, Fred who is um, exemplar, an exemplary researcher, was talking very rightly about the interest of taking something back to the original. I'm also very interested in the journey because it seems to me that once quotations begin to be used as quotations, they can be as subject to language change as any other um, lexical element. And there are questions that one wants to ask. Now, the Edmund Burke... Uh, non-quotation, if you like, and I think everybody's agreed it's not Burke. But what 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 I find fascinating and at the moment inexplicable is why does it suddenly why does it surface in 1920, and why around from about 1950 it then becomes a very well-known political coinage, it's used a great deal, it, the usage level goes right up. Um, and you think, well, why didn't it surface before? Why, why is there not a, a 19th century? Is this not to say that it's, it's Burke, but I, I would like to know more about the journey of something which has become, I would say, one of the best known quotations, albeit a non-quotation that we've got. Right. And sometimes, Elizabeth, it's uh, there's a way in which popular culture can warp that the warp the woof uh, of that very fabric. Um, one of the ones that I know that you you like to talk about sometimes uh, is the thing said by Edward R. Murrow about Winston Churchill. He mobilized the English language and sent it into battle. The problem being that increasingly people will probably think it was said by someone else because of a movie. Correct. I think they might, because I mean it's a it's a wonderful phrase actually, and it was used by Edward Edward R. Murrow uh, after the after the war about Churchill. Uh, but in the the 2018 film, The Darkest Hour, at a very dramatic point when Churchill has made a speech in the House of Commons, it's a, a very well known speech. Um, and an absolutely genuine, genuine speech. He wins over a previously hostile house and his political rival, Halifax, who is sitting in the gallery watching, um, has somebody, a friend with him. And the friend says, um, 
what what's he done um feeling the change of mood and halifax says he's moved he's um mobilized the english language and sent it into battle now dramatically that that works a hundred percent i can exactly see why they used it but i do wonder whether in future you know it that might then become to be attributed to halifax do you, Fred, do you ever, as you're discovering these quotations and researching these quotations, I found even just going through the book, occasionally I would hit one where just hairs would rise up on the back of my neck, maybe not literally, but metaphorically, um, quotations which are so incredibly apt or, or just say so much uh, about the person. Um, oddly enough, back to baseball for a second, uh, there was a, a Jim Bouton quote, uh, which I guess I'm going to have to do off the top of my head, but it was something to the effect of, I spent my whole life thinking about how I should be gripping a baseball. And in in retrospect, it turns out it was the opposite way, the other way around, something like that. I've butchered it. But the whole idea of Bouton sort of realizing the baseball had gripped him. Have you had that experience where you just find a quote and you go, wow, that that is poetry? Uh, yes. I mean, one quote that I like, uh, which is attributed to John Maynard Keynes, although uh, not that's not a, a correct attribution, but <laughs> quote goes, when my information changes... I changed my mind. What do you do, sir? Uh, and that—that uh, that, to me, uh, that's the perfect thing to say if anyone criticizes you for changing your mind. Uh, and and it epitomizes in a very pithy way uh, a brilliant uh, comeback line. Um, Fred, one of the things that you have tackled here um, is is, is hip-hop. Um, there are citations to uh, lots and lots of preeminent hip-hop artists. Is that something that you did? In, I'm assuming like the first edition, I think, was 2006, uh, or at least copyrighted 2006. Is this a new effort to document just some of the things that are said in the world of, of rap and hip-hop? Well, I did, uh, I did work very hard to try to encompass some of, of uh, contemporary popular culture. Uh, I have to say it's not, it's not easy to find, I think, very eloquent uh, lines in our culture nowadays. Uh, and, and I personally am not that familiar at all with, with hip hop music. Uh, my son uh, is very <laughs> interested in it and I, for years, uh, tried to get him to tell me what are the most famous lines from hip hop. But uh, I ended up having to do a lot of research myself. Uh, I, I did try to include things like that, although uh, it's still uh, a very small portion of, of the book. Also, because of hip hop is sort of fluid authorship and, and a lot of collaboration and borrowing and trading back and appropriation. So, I mean, there are, there's who had 99 problems, Ice-T or Jay-Z? Uh, that question will be debated for centuries, I'm sure. Um, you know, and, and Elizabeth, that swings back to a much larger problem, which is uh, in, in terms of what uh, you and Fred do uh, and, and what you do in further revisions and additions, how do you try to keep it from, or maybe you don't, uh, presumably you, you want to try to keep this from being dominated by white males, although so much of what was canonical for so many centuries was dominated by white males. So, so how do you think about correctives for that? It's a balance, I think. Um, you 
you can't start by saying this is what people ought to be quoting. But what you can try to be is more and more sensitive as to where you may look for evidence. I mean, you know, Fred Fred mentioned talking to his son, who's very keen on keen on, keen on hip hop. I mean, it, it's um, it's making sure perhaps or that you don't fall into that. Um, you don't fall into the trap of becoming blind to something that is very much quoted, but you don't happen to be looking at the places it's, be, it's being quoted. So I think that's that's one of the ways. Um, I think today that although um, the um, the digital and electronic world brings its challenges, it does also give us uh, the means whereby we can do much more sampling and taking the sort of testing whether um, whether something if things are are being quoted what is being quoted uh, but you're you're right that um, that I think it's something that you always need to remain alert to that you haven't simply failed to see something because you haven't realized it's a thing to see you know to that point Elizabeth one of the questions I think that does, you know, puzzle us and must be a challenge for you is why do certain quotations endure, survive, prevail, rise to the top uh, like cream um, and other quotations are, are perhaps forgotten? Uh, any thoughts about sort of what makes or breaks them? It can be, I think, that something, something may be, a, a quotation may be, associated with them um, with a with a particular with a particular person um one of the one of the things i was looking at a couple of years ago was um a slight alteration um we must guard even our enemies against injustice uh attributed to tom Paine, uh, the the 18th century radical the original quotation, which it almost certainly reflects, is he that would make his own liberty secure must guard even his enemy against oppression. But the the shorter form, and I think one of the things about quotations is that we very often edit as we remember. So it's quite it's quite likely that that quotations do get slightly trimmed as they're repeated. But in this particular case, it was a great favourite of Graham Greene's. Um, he used it in quite high profile circumstances when he came to New York in 1950, talking about political circumstances and, and the, and the McCarthy era. Uh, he used it again in 1981 when he was receiving a, a literary award for his novel, The End of the, End of the Affair. And if you've got um, if you've got somebody using um, somebody very well known uh, using a particular form and probably and possibly repeating it over decades, that may be one of the things that actually will lodge it in the public consciousness. All right, we're going to have to take a little break here, a very short break. Uh, we will be back with more uh, more about quotations uh, with uh, our guests Elizabeth Knowles and Fred Shapiro. Quotation profound, and I'm here to break it down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You see, the dictionary wrote that to quote is to devote your words to someone else's name. Why you quote a quotation? You can also quote a quote in the punctuation nation. Quote me. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare. 
Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the Go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. We're back. The subject today is quotations. Of course, to whatever extent your head is full of quotations, a lot of those quotations probably come from movies. And if you're a stickler for exactitude, you should realize that a lot of your memories of what was said in movies is wrong, just misremembered or passed along in the wrong way, or sometimes because an impressionist does a version of a particular actor that involves saying a certain phrase differently than the way it was really said in the movie. So anyway, just as an example, remember in Casablanca, remember how Ingrid Bergman says, play it again, Sam. The only problem with that is she doesn't. Play it, Sam. Play as time goes by. Well, I can't remember it myself. I'm a little rusty on it. Okay. Well, how about the evil queen in Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs? I mean, everybody knows that she says, mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? Or does she? What wouldst thou know, my queen? Magic mirror on the wall. Who is the fairest one of all? Famed is thy beauty, majesty. In fact, that misquote is so famous that there's another Snow White movie called Mirror, Mirror. Okay, this one is so persistent that it's even on some of the packaging of further reissues of the movie. The movie is Wall Street. Everybody knows. Gordon Gecko says, greed is good, right? Here he goes saying, greed is good. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Okay, well, maybe not so much, but that is uh, printed right on the DVD packaging cover of the movie Wall Street. So somebody thought that he said it that way. And then there's Apocalypse Now with Robert Duvall saying, I love the smell of napalm in the morning. It smells like victory. Except really... I love the smell of napalm in the morning. You know, one time we had a hail bomb for 12 hours. When it was all over, I walked up. We didn't find one of them, not one stinking pink body. Smell! You know that gasoline smell? The whole hill. Smells like... Victory. And eh, maybe the most famous one of them all. Luke, I am your father. He sort of says that, although here's what he really says. He told me you killed him. No, I am your father. 
So maybe we're splitting hairs about that, though. Uh, close enough. Um, or maybe not close enough. So uh, to talk a little bit more about um, attributions, misquotes, things like that. Fred Shapiro, editor of the new Yale Book of Quotations, uh, brand new edition out. Fascinating. A lot of fun. I'm addicted to this book. He's also associate director for collections and special projects at the Yale Law Library. Um, so one of the things you really did try to do is focus uh, somewhat on misquotations or misattributions. Uh, there seems to be maybe a little bit of a pattern where qu- quotes are quotes that are really from women wind up being attributed to men. Tell us about the serenity prayer. All right. Uh, Elizabeth uh, Knowles talked about the, the journey of a quotation. Uh, and I think she's, she's very right about that. And to me, the most fascinating journey I've found of any quotation is the serenity prayer. Uh, I, together with uh, Professor uh, William Fitzgerald from uh, Rutgers University, have for 10, 20 years been studying the serenity prayer. And it's, it's usually attributed to the great theologian and uh, political philosopher Reinhold Niebuhr. And Niebuhr's daughter wrote... Uh, an entire book called The Serenity Prayer revolving around a story of how her father sat down in a bucolic village in the Berkshires in Massachusetts and wrote The Serenity Prayer in 1943. And uh, I I searched the words from The Serenity Prayer in newspaper databases. They're tremendously powerful databases now of historical newspapers. And I found that there were uh, seven uh, instances where the Serenity Prayer appeared in print before 1943, back to 1936. Uh, And uh, the New York Times wrote a front page story about that discovery. Uh, I kept kept researching it. And and for a while, I felt that it was Niebuhr, that uh, Niebuhr may have used it before 1943, and he, it uh, just uh, didn't get publicized until later, and his daughter just didn't know about the earlier usage. But by uh, doing database searches, I finally found that it was used in 1933 by a, an obscure woman, a, a YWCA official named Winifred Weigel. And all the evidence, when you look at, and, and uh, uh, Professor Fitzgerald and I have now found uh, hundreds of early instances of the Serenity Prayer. And it's clear when you look at the whole picture that Winifred Weigel did originate it. Uh, but uh, it's it's a, a pattern, as, uh, as you say, that uh, unsung women create uh, great quotations and sometimes, often, uh, they get attributed to famous men uh, instead of the, the true originator. Right. In fact, the, another one that I find fascinating is um, something that really kind of fell into vogue, I don't know, maybe about 10, 15 years ago. Sing like no one is listening, love like you've never been hurt, dance like nobody's watching, live like it's heaven on earth. Uh, it's been attributed to Mark Twain. We're going to deal in our final segment today exclusively with the way in which Twain uh, is um, is credited with so many things that he, he didn't actually say. Uh, but that actually comes from, as you've discovered and documented, a songwriter named Susanna Clark. Um, so, um, 
So sorry, Satchel Page and Mark Twain. Anyway, we have to stop there. We're going to take a little break. We've been talking to Fred Shapiro. Uh, he is the editor of the new Yale Book of Quotations, just out, associate director for collections and special projects at the Yale Law Library. And now, I wish I had a good quote for it, but people are going to ask you to pledge and support uh, this radio station and especially this show if you donate while we're on the air. We get a little more credit for it, so think about that. As time goes by. Hi there, you're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Ali Oshinsky, a reporter here. I'm here with my coworker, Meg Fitzgerald. Hi, Meg. Hi, Ali. Good to be here. I want to interview you right now um, because we, this fun drive, we have partnered with Connecticut Food Share, and there's a gift of $10 a month um, where you can give Food Share. It, it will help to support food share. So we'll donate 25 meals to Connecticut food share. And then you'll also be supporting Connecticut public. But the question I have for you, Meg is um, I believe you went to food share. Could you give us like a little flavor of what flavor, not no pun intended of what food share does in Connecticut? Absolutely. So food share. Um, and if you've been following some of our, our coverage throughout the pandemic, um, you know, food share uh, has uh doing a, a huge, uh, done a huge operation out of Rensselaer Field, as well as some of their other satellite uh, locations where uh, they've done food donations for people in need, um, helping people across the state to uh, fight food insecurity. Um, so actually, a, a, a pile of us employees here at Connecticut Public um, volunteered to do some shifts to help uh, prep and bag food that was handed out at these locations. So um, Connecticut Public has done this great partnership for this pledge drive with Food Share. So as Ali said, for only $10 a month, not only will you be helping um, Food Share by uh, those $10 uh, gets 25 meals for those in need. Uh, we also have an option where you, if you want to do $24 a month, which would be amazing, you'd also be giving 60 meals for those in wow. need. So That's not. Great. Yeah. So you're not just your your money is doing sort of double effort. Not only are you helping uh, people across the state fight food insecurity, you're helping to support us at Connecticut Public to continue to bring you some of the great programming like the Colin McEnroe show that you're listening to this afternoon with us. Yeah. So if you want to do that, um, you can go to ctpublic.org. And then actually you can check out our, our fancy new website, which is pretty fun. Click the red donate button. It also has a little heart on it because you love Connecticut public and then go. Um, well, I don't want to tell you what you feel, but I'm guessing if you're donating, you love it or like it in some way. And then click on whatever amount works for you per month. As Meg said before, for $10 a month, you can give 25 meals and also give $10 to Connecticut Public for $16, 40 meals, for $24, 60 meals. I mean, it's just, it's a deal. And it's a great way to support two of your favorite Connecticut institutions. So 1-800-584-2788 or ctpublic.org. Yes. And if you're a fan of the Colin McEnroe show, you know that uh, Colin and the, where, and the, I almost said the Where We Live team. 
gosh. Colin, so I, much, I mean, so they, much they great programming help here. They all help each other. Yeah. They, there's so much great programming here. It's it's hard to keep it all straight. But if you mm. love the Colin McEnroe show as much as we do, you know that there is uh, so much great topics and perspectives that Colin and his team cover uh, in the show. Allie, do you have a, sort of a favorite show or something that you've mm. heard on Colin's show recently that, that you just can get off your brain? <laughs> Well, as a longtime listener, I got to say, I do, I know that this can be, some people don't get it and others do, but I do kind of love the ongoing sort of jokes and references. Um, the deep, the more you listen to Colin, the more you sort of understand his sense of humor. And so, um, you know, I, I think back to his Not About to Peers show where they tried to do this sort of conceptual show that was not about something. They tried to make it not about anything at all. Of course, it ended up being about something, which was that it was not about anything. But, uh, you know, it's sort of that fun, quirky stuff. I also love really fun conceptual shows. Um, So, yeah, I mean, uh, I think one of my favorite things about Colin is just listening. One of my favorite uh, activities, my Colin McEnroe activities, listening to the show and just listening to a great brain at work. Uh, So if you like listening to that brain, if you like listening to all the brains on Connecticut Public Radio, you can donate to ctpublic.org. Well, you can't donate. You can go there on your web, on your computer, click donate, give your money, feel good. Or you can call 1-800-584-2788. That's 1-800-584-2788. Donate what you can show your love and thank you so much for listening to Connecticut Public Radio. All right. Uh, I also should have pithy quotes for this little part of the show when I thank the key people on the show. Uh, that includes Kat Pastor, who is the technical producer of this and all episodes of The Colin McEnroe Show. Uh, and Lily Tyson uh, is the producer of this particular episode uh, of the show. Where we've been talking about quotations. Uh, we've been as general as we possibly could be. Um, but there are certain people who are just quote machines. They are just, you. no matter what you do, you know, you can't limit them. In a book like the Yale book, of the new Yale book of quotations, you can't limit Oscar Wilde to a couple of pages. I mean, <laughs> there's just too much, you know, and and, and H.L. Mencken and people like that, their, their reputations are well earned as quote factories. But maybe nobody is as big a quote factory, particularly when you fold in all the things that he didn't say that people just assume he must have said, uh, than Mark Twain. And since I'm sitting I don't know, it's like a five-minute walk from here to the Mark Twain house, an even shorter walk to Joseph Twitchell's church. Uh, and uh, since I worked for many years for the Hartford Current, where Charles Charles Dudley Warner was, I believe, an editor, he also, some, some of his quotes get attributed to Twain. We're going to spend uh, this final segment just talking about uh, the quotable Mark Twain, which also happens to be the title uh, of a book by Kent Rasmussen. He is the editor of The Quotable Mark Twain and Mark Twain A to Z, among other books. Uh, and he's joining us now to talk about Twain and quotations. Hi, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you doing there? Good. So, Incidentally, you, yeah. mentioned that you're clo- you're, you mentioned that you're close to the Mark Twain house. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're aware that Catherine Hepburn's family lived in Hartford. And uh, around 1920, the Mark Twain house was a school, and uh, Catherine Hepburn's brother attended the school in that house. Well, I also know that it was a private home, I believe, owned by the family of Richard Bissell, 
Now, there's two Richard Bissells. I think this is the one, the, the Bay of Pigs, uh, Richard Bissell. Uh, but yeah, that's that's a whole other show. We can't get too bogged down in that. Kent, or we'll never get to what we need to get to. So Twain is so quotable and is the the speaker of so many epigrams and maxims that that he's even got a good quote about maxims, right? Uh, and I think this is one of your favorite ones about the proper proportions of a maxim. Tell us about that. Well, um I don't have it right before me. Oh, What's here. that word is the proper proportions of a maximum or maximum of sense to a minimum of sound? Yeah, you have it basically right. And what that, Go ahead. Yeah, what that states, obviously, is that the uh, conciseness is the important thing. He, he was very good at expressing thoughts in a, in a few words. Uh, he was very interested in maxims. Uh, he actually went out of his way to to write maxims in some of his books, most notably Puddinghead Wilson. Each chapter begins with a pithy maxim. And, and Puddinghead Wilson actually, I believe, also uh, includes Puddinghead Wilson's new calendar in More Tramps Abroad includes that that quote about maxims themselves. Well, tell me one or two of your actual favorite Twain quotes, and then we can talk about debunking some of the things attributed to him. What are the ones that you love? Well, there's so hard many. I uh, I get stumped when I get an open-ended question like that. I sent you some samples. Sure. Uh, one of them, which I chose because it's it's kind of unusual. And darn it, I can't find the uh, the text right here. Give me give me a hint. Off the give, wall thing. Yeah, give me it, a hint because I probably it, got. Well, here it is. <laughs> He's talking about elevators in France. Mm-hmm. Uh, he mentions that the uh, elevators in, he calls them lifts, uh, in Paris uh, had held two persons and traveled at such a slow gait that the spectator could not tell which way it was going. I first read that about 30 years ago, and it stuck in my mind all these years. The idea of being in an elevator that is so slow, you can't tell whether you're going up or down. And I, I cite that as an example. It's not brilliantly worded by any means, but it's an example of Mark Twain's ability to see something that not everybody else sees. He, he had a real knack for writing things in a way that are memorable. And as I said, I read that 30 years ago, and it's never left my mind. I, I often think of it when I'm in a situation where things are moving so slowly. Uh, Another uh, maxim that I like, and it's fairly well known, is he's talking about, this was a, a private note he wrote in his own journals, my books are water, those of the great geniuses are wine, everybody drinks water. Well, obviously what he's saying there is that he doesn't compare himself to the great writers in profund- profundity, but he writes for the common person, and the common people read his books. They may not read the books of the brilliant writers, but they read his books. And I think that's very true. And as a matter of fact, I, I tend to think of myself similarly. I don't compare myself to Mark Twain, but the kinds of books that I've written on Mark Twain, I wouldn't regard as brilliant in the same sense as a lot of the great scholarly works, but my books are books that do get read. And I feel a certain pride in, in thinking of myself that way. My books are water. <laughs> yeah, and I'm not sure Twain 100. Yep. I'm not Twain that sure that Twain 100 percent believed that uh, about himself. It, it's a it, you know it's a nice self-deprecating thing to say, but I'm pretty sure he knew yeah. that Huckleberry Finn was wine and not water. Um, there is a I way, there is a, I, go ahead. Yeah, 
I was going to say, I, I don't think he appreciated the significance of Huckleberry Finn. He, he liked that book, but he didn't regard it as one of his greatest works. Mm-hmm. He, he said, on uh, more than one occasion, that it, he thought his best work was his book on Joan of Arc, Recole- Personal Recollections of Joan of Arc. <laughs> and there's probably not a single person on earth that would agree with him on that. Do you have a favorite quote yourself? Um, not maybe a favorite quote, but um, uh, first of all, as somebody who lives in New England, I, I've always liked if you don't like the weather in New England, just wait a few minutes. Um, and and I think you know one of the he, more, he didn't say that. Well, really, because the the, the the Yale book, I know that he didn't say um, everybody talks about the weather, but nobody does anything about it. But I thought he did say the New England one. But yeah, go ahead, instruct me. Oh, okay. Okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a pass on that one. Uh, those two quotes are obviously uh, related. Yeah. I think Charles Dudley Warner said a version of the uh, everybody, uh, everybody talks about the weather, but nobody does anything about it. Twain definitely did not uh, uh-huh. say did not say that one. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, one that's kind of tricky, but but I think is certainly the, the new Yale book uh, attributes it to him is uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Um, I mean, what's your take on that? Are, are you fairly confident that, that that's from him? I'll tell you the truth. I'm not sure. Uh, does the does the source you have there cite where that comes from? Um, I would take too long to look it up, actually. But um, it's an interesting one, too, because I've seen it attributed to other people and even the site quote, quote investigator. I think one time I was trying to figure out who actually said it. And, and there seemed to be a little bit of uh, a little bit less certainty. It, it um, I mean, there's something about Twain, I think, because of the way that he says things, um, you know, uh, that if you encounter something else that seems kind of playful, uh, seems kind of um, interestingly worded and, and is pithy in the way that uh, that he talks about, you know, having a, a maximum amount of sense and a minimum amount of verbiage. Uh, people just sort of assume that he, it probably is him. Um, and yeah. Um, I mean, another one of his that I love is the difference between the almost right word and the right word is really a large matter. It's the difference between the lightning bug and the lightning. But but yeah, I mean, we run into other stuff and it sort of seems I, before the before the break uh, that led into this thing, I, I talked about that, that the quote about dance like nobody's watching, um, which has been attributed to both him and to Satchel Page. It's not by either one of them. So, I mean, it seems like somebody who's an expert on the quotable Mark Twain, I've been told that the the social media managers at the Mark Twain house, a big part of their job will be just going on Twitter and saying, nope, he didn't say that. Nope, he didn't say that. I mean, I assume that's sort of part of your quote unquote job, too. There's just sort of saying, nope, he didn't say that. I don't get that much of that. But personally, uh, there are two other people or two other uh, venues that do. One, of course, is uh, the Mark Twain Project in Berkeley. The Mark Twain Papers are housed at the University of California there, and they're getting phone calls and correspondence all the time. Uh, the one quote uh, that is possibly the most famous misquote of Mark Twain, and it's a quote that's very important in my own life, is the coldest winter I ever spent was a summer in San Francisco. You must have heard that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that was important to me for a couple of reasons. One, I grew up in Berkeley across the bay from San Francisco, so I had a fairly intimate acquaintance with San Francisco, and I was quite taken by that quote. 
but uh, the people at uh, the Mark Twain papers there had been asked about that quote so many times, they finally did an investigation and printed a broadside so that when they got queries, they just hand out the paper. And they concluded there's no evidence whatever that Mark Twain ever said that. Uh, and they found some evidence of another uh, writer who had said something similar. But as I said, that quote's important to me. I was in Aberdeen, Scotland in 1977, walking down uh, Main Street, or what do they call it, the High Street in uh, Aberdeen, on a sunny day in September. Now, this is September on a sunny day, and there was a cold wind whipping down from the North Sea. And at, at the time, I felt so chilled. I thought to myself, the coldest winter I ever spent was a summer in Aberdeen. Uh, it's a it's a wonderful quote, but it's absolutely uh, has nothing to do with Mark Twain. His only remarks about San Francisco weather contradicted. I did a little check on that and found that the all time record low temperature in San Francisco during the summer months is in the mid 40s. So uh, he he actually criticized San Francisco for having weather that is so mild that it was boring. Right. Nevertheless, uh, he's still still quoted on that. Oh yeah, no. I, I until you told me that, I, I absolutely would have hewed to the idea that that he's the person who said that. Um, actually, having also been, I actually do feel with San Francisco having kayaked on a beautiful day in shorts and and, and sh- uh, short sleeves uh, out of uh, Sausalito uh, in like you know mid December. <laughs> it does sometimes seem like the seasons are a little bit inverted there somehow. We we should talk about. Uh, one of the w- ways that you became attracted to Mark Twain and his quotes is, A, learning that that quote wasn't true, but al- also his line about the Book of Mormon, which is true. T- tell us about that one. <laughs> when you say that the line about the Book of Mormon is true, do you mean that well, what he said was true or true well, that it, he said it? It's true that he said it. Uh, I'm not pronouncing on the Book of Mormon uh, one way or another, at least not today. <laughs> oh, I'm just, I'm, I'm just, just teasing you here. Um, I think I first heard that remark when I was in a history seminar. I was in grad school at UCLA during the late 60s. And a fellow student, uh, for some reason, I have no idea why, mentioned that Mark Twain described the Book of Mormon as chloroform in print. And I loved that remark and thought about it for years and years. And uh, later, and the late, uh, or actually it was about 1990, I was working at UCLA as an editor on a document project. And one day I decided to find out where did Mark Twain make the remark about the Book of Mormon and also the remark about San Francisco. So I went up to the main library on campus and looked over the uh, Mark Twain books and selected Roughing It, which I had never read, although I grew up with a set of Mark Twain books and had read a lot of them. And when I read that book, I, I was surprised uh, that I didn't find the San Francisco quote. And as I said, everything I, I found about San Francisco seemed to contradict that sentiment about the weather. But it does contain the, uh, the Book of Mormon remark. The, the graduate student that made that remark in the seminar later became a dean at the University of Wisconsin. And I had the great pleasure I'm sending him a copy of my book, The Quotable Mark Twain, mm. in which I acknowledged his contribution to the book. So 
All right. Well, Ken, yeah, Ken, Ratma, uh, Ken Rasmussen, we're going to have to stop here because the show's over. Uh, I've To quote, uh, oh dear. yeah, I'm sorry, uh, editor of the quotable Mark Twain and Mark Twain A to Z, among other books. Groucho Marx, it turns out, may not have said, I've had a wonderful time, but this wasn't it. Uh, I hope you've had a wonderful time. I hope this was it. People are going to ask you to support shows like this one. Please help out. Good afternoon. I'm Meg Fitzgerald. I'm the senior project manager here at Connecticut Public, and I'm here along with my colleague and reporter, Ali Oshinsky. Hi, Ali. Hello. Hi. Hi, listeners. <laughs> Hi, Meg, too. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yes, <laughs> listeners, thank you for, for joining us and for being fans of The Colin McEnroe Show and Connecticut Public Radio. Um, as you know, we're in the middle of our pledge week this week. And as we're maybe coming up along towards the end of the week, I know one of the things I most look forward to is The Nose, which is The Colin McEnroe Show's uh, mostly weekly uh, roundup of Basically, it's like a public radio take on the nonsense celebrity news that you mostly don't expect public radio to have a take on. And I mm. love that. And we have a take. And we have a take. So, yes. yes you Hot can... takes, cold takes, lukewarm takes. Lukewarm takes. I mean, yes. if you are not sure what you want to binge, watch, uh, listen to, or read, just dive into any The No Show and you can get caught up in any pop culture thing you feel like you've missed out on. Or if you just want to geek out on all your favorite guilty pleasures, you know, maybe you're doing that out in public, maybe you're doing it in secret. But The No's with Colin and team and, you know, some really great voices from around the state um, are a great way to sort of just dive into all those juicy things. And if that's something that you love about The Colin McEnroe Show, then I would encourage you to support us because we can't do this programming without your help. Um, and you can do that by going to ctpublic.org and clicking on the Donate button. Or you can give us a call by calling 1-800-584-2788. You know what I love about the nose, Meg? I feel somewhat freed from guilty pleasures because it is, <laughs> sorry the guilt of guilty pleasures by the nose or rather just that like pop culture is important it does shape our world and it's particular it's like specifically held in sort of like the young female realm but here we have colin saying like we're going to pay attention to this because the people who create pop culture are important to our society and our culture that's right um, and so you tune into connecticut public radio one may assume to be like, oh, I know the serious news. But guess what? We're also going to give you some fun, goofy, and we're not going to call it guilty. It is like relevant. Yes. Uh, we're going to give that through the Colin McEnroe show. Listen, so if you, you want support- to. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, you know what? When we get back to the office and you want some water cooler talk, you better be listening to the Friday nose so that you're prepared. If you want to support the Colin McEnroe show, call 1 800 584 2788 or go to ctpublic.org. Thank you.